y'all. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with author Nafisa Thompson-Spires, Her first book, Heads of the Color People, which was released last year, is an incredibly beautiful collection of short stories that feature quirky and unforgettable characters. While the topics woven throughout the stories are serious, there are moments of humor that truly shine through. Drawing inspiration from 19th century sketches by Dr. James McCune Smith, these stories are funny, heartbreaking, and thought-provoking. Nafisa is such a gifted writer and a very special new voice. What's more, she just won the Penn Open Book Award for her fantastic collection. It was such an honor to chat with Nafisa. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I am very excited to have on my podcast Nafisa Thompson Spires. How are you today? Great. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Thank you. We were just talking about the weather. It doesn't seem to really be getting any worse, but perhaps not much better than I guess better than negative seven. It's not great. (laughs) Yeah, definitely better. I can't even imagine what that would be like. So I wanted to, there's so many things I really want to chat with you about, but I also wanted to ask about your cover because it is just striking, as I was just saying to you. And I just was wondering, as you were creating this story and creating these series of stories, if your mind was really fixated on a particular cover or how it actually worked when you got together with everybody involved and created this beautiful cover? It's funny. I really do love the cover and the color scheme in particular, I think is gorgeous. I had a little bit more say with my US design than I did with the UK design. They chose an artist ahead of time and wanted the artist to kind of do a particular style. And it worked perfectly. In my mind, I was imagining a tribe called Quest's Midnight Marauders album initially with a bunch of little heads. But now I think that would have been way too obvious and derivative. So I like what the UK designers came up with. Yeah. And of course, the US cover is is equally beautiful. Just the color scheme, I think both sides of the pond got it absolutely right. And it definitely catches your eye as you come into that bookstore. And it's, it's something you want to pick up, which is very exciting. And, you know, after reading and loving your book, I also wanted to know more about Dr. McCune Smith, which I understand is where the inspiration for the book came from in his nine sketches. And I think it's interesting that even though there's 165 years or so between his work and yours, you said in a previous interview with Seth Meyers, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit, that there were unfortunately many similarities from the 19th century to, you know, to now. And I was just wondering if you could talk us through the inspiration for these sketches and how you look to them for that inspiration. Sure. James McCune Smith was a black poet and abolitionist and doctor, and he was serializing his sketches in Frederick Douglass's newspapers. Um, Frederick Douglass actually had several newspapers and other publications. And so people would have been reading these sketches in the same way they would have been reading a little excerpt from Dickens in serial form. And he was basically trying to theorize what black life would look like during that time period with the full rights of citizenship. And what I thought was interesting about the sketches, my husband studies them. He's a researcher and a professor at our university. And he writes a lot about them. And he was always coming downstairs from his office and reporting back these stories that were so similar to the things that we're dealing with today, like police brutality, voter suppression, lots and lots of state-sanctioned violence. And just, I was struck by how 
difficult it is to talk about black history without talking about those things. And even though it's almost 200 years later, it feels like the same time period, or it's more than 200 years later, and it feels like the same time period. So I wanted to kind of be in conversation with James McCune Smith's sketches and also some of his contemporaries. There's also Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, who was writing similar sketches. And I wanted to kind of write back to them. But I found that a bit too restrictive. And then I ultimately just took his idea of heads more generally and started thinking about psychology and racial science or racist science, phrenology, the study of the shape of heads, leadership, and just kind of the theme became the anchor for the collection. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful collection. And what I really loved about your book, I mean, there's many things that I loved, but one of the things that I loved about your book is that each character, each individual that's included in the book has their own story, their own chapter, and there is some crossover for some of the characters. And I really only got into short stories a few years ago, so it was really nice to read your book and to have those individual stories. And I think as well, I'd be interested to know, did you feel that readers should really start from beginning to end? Or do you think it is also one of those kinds of books where you can pick it up and read one chapter perhaps in the middle and then go to another one? I think it is quite quite nice that way. Yeah, I think short story collections, when we're assembling them as writers or editors, we're thinking about how it would feel to read them from beginning to end and pay a lot of attention to the order. But I also think that the great thing about a short story collection is that you can read wherever you feel like it and whenever you feel like it and sort of dip in and out. And I've certainly read collections out of order or I've skipped stories and then gone back to them. And I think that's the nice thing about standalone stories rather than a novel. You get this different experience where you can sort of choose your own adventure. But that said, I do think the order matters too. Yeah, absolutely. And the first story follows two of the characters in the story are Riley and Paris who both fall in love with cosplay. And this was something that was quite new to me, so I enjoyed reading the detail of the costumes that they wear and and how they wear them. And there's a really great line in this chapter, uh, which I love, which I'm just going to read. And it was, if Paris could have a superpower, it would be to make herself visible. And then it goes on to talk about how when she's in costume with Riley, she feels better about herself. And then for her day-to-day job, where she is giving tours for the celebrity cemeteries, she prefers to narrate the tours and fade into the background and let the spirit speak for themselves. And I was just wondering when you were writing these two characters and and perhaps all the, the other characters in your book, I think you really struck this fantastic balance of allowing the characters to speak for themselves and you take them for who they are on the page with all those details, but also they very much jump out at you off the page and have their own spirits, I think. And I was just wondering how you wrote this, how you achieved this. Well, thank you. That's a nice compliment. I don't know how you achieve it. It's something I work hard at and I I try to teach it. But I think one of the things that helped me that some advice I got from a workshop I did with Jacinda Townsend, who's a novelist, is that it's important to figure out the empathy for your characters. And that's something that I've started teaching as well. And that I look for in my own writing exercises. How do you find, even if you're writing a character who's not so nice, like Lizbeth in one of my other stories, you know, you still need to look for the empathy. And I think that makes it easier to write round characters at the end of the day and people who kind of jump off of the page because they're whole people instead of just a quick glimmer of someone, even though a short story is only offering you a sort of very small piece of someone's life. The best experience is when you feel like you still know that person beyond what's on the page. 
And so for me, that always goes back to empathy. What are their vulnerabilities? What are they hiding? What do they really want? Yeah, and that gives you the whole picture of that person. And certainly in that story and other stories, you receive different details and little snippets of information about that particular character or person, and it's not the whole story. So even though you're reading further on, you learn more stuff as you go along. And I just found that that really interesting. And they're also characters that stay with you even after you've turned the page or even after you've closed the book. And I just think that is so great that this book does that. I also wanted to look at another story, which was one of my favorites, Randolph. I say it's funny yet painful, which I think is a little ironic because it's about a professor who shares a office with someone that he doesn't necessarily get on with, and he unfortunately suffers migraines. So he keeps the lights off in his office, and when his uh, office mate, Isabella, questions him about this they definitely have a bit of a war within the walls that they have to be in and he has to explain himself to her rather than Isabella just kind of taking him at face value taking what he says and accommodating it and I really would just like your opinion on how you think as a society we can be more accommodating when things like this happen that's interesting I I think that also goes back to empathy and learning how to have difficult conversations. I mean, one of the reasons Randolph experiences so much tension with Isabella is because he's sort of passive aggressive and afraid to deal with confrontation. And he also has a complex about masculinity and women having a little bit too much power. And so a lot of the ways he's reading the situation, you're never sure whose perspective is the right one in that story until the sort of surprise ending. Um, But a lot of his insecurities prevent him from being able to interact with Isabella the way a person should or would under the best circumstances. And so if he were able to just have a conversation with her and not tiptoe around it, and he eventually does have a conversation with her, I think things would have worked out better. But beyond that, if he'd asked for what he needed, the story starts with it was much easier for him to find a new office space than he expected. He simply asked for one. And I think asking for what you need is another way to kind of manage those difficult situations as well. Yeah, those conversations are definitely not easy. And the ending, the surprise ending indeed that you're alluding to, I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but it it definitely made me laugh because it was so unexpected after a story of tension like that um, for Randolph to walk past and and see a very similar situation happening in in another office is is very funny. And I thought a very clever way to to tie it in. There's a lot of elements of, of humor in your book. There are very serious subjects that are addressed in each chapter, but there is just a great deal of humor. Was it easy to write in those moments of humor or? It's sad because I'm not actually funny, I feel, in regular life. I'm goofy and I love comedy. I only watch comedy. I'm a person who basically can't tolerate any drama (laughs) because sensitive. But I'm much funnier on paper, I think, where I can edit and think about things than I am if I were just sort of telling a joke. Although my students tend to say that I'm funny. (laughs) Is that before Um, or after they give you their reviews? (laughs) That's in the reviews. Oh, that's even better. (laughs) Yeah. And I think... I'm actually... I'm teaching a class on humor, and it's interesting because it's... Teaching humor also isn't funny. It's, It's very mechanical, and it involves being really careful about the way you think of things in a sort of critical, analytical way. And it isn't funny to teach it. But yeah. I think the payoff is that you learn how to be funny on the page. And I don't know, it's something I think I've intuited, 
but now that I'm studying it and trying to teach it, I see the patterns. And for me, having a kind of wry outlook on life is a great way to create some humor, thinking about the absurdity in everyday life. I think it's interesting, though, that you say you don't perhaps think you're naturally funny, but everyone else is saying otherwise. So I wonder what that says to you about that. I think I have a complex because I really wanted to be a stand-up comedian as a child. And I also was the class clown in fifth grade. And I was doing really lame things like bringing whoopee cushions to school. And <laughs> I love that. trick gum that tasted like fish when you bit into the middle of it. Oh like really gosh. Fozzie Bear level <laughs> jokes and gags that did not work out so well. And so I think I've just intuited that I'm not funny, even though my work is funny. Oh, well, I definitely think that you're being a little hard on yourself because the humor that comes through in your book is very funny. So I would definitely say I'm I'm one of the people who think you're you're very funny. Um, Thanks. One of the other stories, uh, I keep saying one of the stories, I, I love all of them, but I think I am going to have to say my favorite story is the, the Bell's Letters. I was reading this thinking about my own childhood and, you know, letters that go back and forth between parents. And it, again, is about confrontation. And two mothers are writing these letters back and forth about their their daughters. And there's the question around whether one of them is bullying the other or if it actually is the other one. And it is a very interesting back and forth. But what I really enjoyed the most and what I found quite unexpected in the communication was that it was written letters that were being sent across, so actual written correspondence. And I was just wondering, you know, the phrase, is the pen mightier than the sword, why you chose written communication as opposed to emails or any other form of communication? Yeah, that story is somewhat autobiographical. And it's set in 1990 or 1991. And that's part of why it's written letters. The internet existed, but most people didn't have access to email at that time, or even IMing or anything like that until a few years later. So I thought there was something interesting about being able to respond very quickly, and to tuck the letters into their daughter's respective backpack and, and tucking them away each day, versus an email, if it were a little bit later in time, where the response might be written quickly, but you don't know when someone's going to actually open it or anything like that. So that story's autobiographical in that when I was in elementary school, my mother really was feuding with the mother of my childhood bully. And I Gosh. found a letter from that mother about me as an adult. My mom actually sent it to me in a box of stuff that she was sending from my childhood. And I thought the letter was just so nasty, but also kind of funny, and that it would make a great short story. So it's kind of an instant prompt in a box which is a nice thing to get, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But also, why are you sending this to me, Mom, after all these years? <laughs> well, that was my first question. Why are you sending this to me? Are you trying to send me a message about yeah. myself? Like, did you read the letter before you sent it to me? It, it was a really mean letter. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. Oh, I just – and again, the the subject of if people just address their needs up front and have those difficult conversations up front, which I know is easy to say – And no one, at least most people I know, don't enjoy confrontation, but it does beg the question of, and and the thing I love in the story is that they're upping each other with every letter. So, you know, doctor and and using these official titles, and then there's a very sweet ending at the end. And yeah, it it is very interesting, the whole element around, around confrontation. It just, it doesn't really work, does it? No, and then you've, even though that story has a seemingly happy ending, the other stories in the collection about this character, Fatima, show that it's an ongoing conflict, right? She never really does make up with Christinia, not for very long periods, at least. And she remains a source of tension in her life, even in high school and 
even when she's an adult living on her own, she's still thinking about the impact of that girl. It's amazing how these childhood confrontations, these childhood disagreements can carry well into our adulthood. And it creates a sort of complex, doesn't it? And we do things like we question ourselves, we question how we feel about that particular person, about the particular situation. And it's it's not a great feeling to have. And it, I feel like it, it happens to a lot of people. Would you agree? Yeah, I think childhood bullying or just lots of negative experiences with your peers can definitely cause self-esteem issues and cause you to doubt and question yourself, which is hard. I mean, growing up is already difficult because of all the pressure and the images that you're supposedly live up to. But then when you add someone who's directly telling you that something's wrong with you, how would you not internalize some of that, even under the best circumstances? It definitely creates that that level of self-doubt. And speaking of self-doubt and self-reflection, the story of Jilly is was for me certainly one of the hardest to read and is heartbreaking. It looks at elements like mental health and loneliness and something we can probably all relate to in some way or the other of being addicted to social media. And it also, for me, brings up the danger around our need to be viewed a certain way, which we essentially just talking about, especially on social media, this idea that we have to have a perfect life on Instagram, that we have to say the funniest, wittiest things on Twitter. And then we we go back in our mind and we say, oh, should I have, you know, said something funnier or should I posted something that made me look better in a different light? And I was just wondering how you feel we should combat this this feeling and, and the role that social media perhaps has on things like mental health. I think the studies about its role on mental health are kind of speak for themselves, but there's clearly a damaging effect for people who pay too much attention to that, especially when they're in their formative years. But I also think that social media offers an opportunity for people to be much more honest about what's going on in their lives. I've seen funny memes that say something like, you know, Facebook is where people go to present one part of their lives and Instagram is where they go to pretend that they're perfect and Twitter is where they go to vent. And I think each platform kind of has a different tone. And I think Instagram is probably for me, the most insidious because it is a lot of performing perfection and having a great life or look at this beautiful plate of food. And I'm guilty of all that too. But I also try to be really honest about my life as much as I possibly can be. So I try to only curate the positive parts of my life because I don't want to be adding a lot of negativity to an already negative space and world. I'm also clear that I'm struggling all the time. I live with a chronic illness. I'm sick 98% of the time. And that's a very real fact. It's just not one that I want to post about regularly. So I try to balance it with that honesty. And I think if more people did that, those places would feel safer and less damaging for mental health. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a really great way of putting it. And I think on the other end of the spectrum, social media can be a great opportunity to hear from new voices, to hear different perspectives. And I think before social media, we didn't have as much options. We also didn't have as much noise, the bad kind at least. But we didn't have as many options to, you know, speak up and, and say how we feel about certain things. And that can be detrimental and, and good in certain ways. But, you know, like with anything, there's there's pros and cons to everything. But it's, it's a tricky, tricky topic, isn't it? Yeah. And I think for young people, there's still great controls in place that parents can use to kind of prevent some of that noise from getting to them. I mean, I, I was born in 1983, And when I was in sixth grade, that's when AOL became really popular. And I was in AOL chat rooms, but my dad always said, 
I have the sort of master password to everything. And if you mess up, I can change your password and I can get rid of your account. And so I knew that there was a hovering presence over me. That's not the same, obviously, as having a smartphone where you take it to your own bedroom and you do whatever you want with it all day. But I still knew that somebody was watching me. And that made a difference in my choices. And I think that we can still kind of create that feeling for kids without taking away too much of their privacy. No, that's absolutely true. I was born in 85, so not much longer after you. And I certainly remember the days of uh, AOL Instant Messenger and creating your screen name for the first time. And and it it makes me smile thinking about how much technology has changed. I'm sure you remember the sounds of dial-up. Have your uh, phone line tied up for hours when you're on AOL Instant Messenger. I do, yeah. Oh my gosh, that feels like ages ago, doesn't it? I still have an AOL account, so it feels oh like gosh. ages ago, but it's, it's still around for me. I love that you have an AOL account. That's fantastic. Another story that I wanted to chat about was Not Today, Marjorie. So this story follows Marjorie, it puts us in her shoes, and she unfortunately, and for American listeners, you'll understand what I mean when I say unfortunately having to go to the DMV. For non-American listeners, the DMV is the Department of Motor Vehicles, and Marjorie has to spend time waiting at the DMV, and she struggles, we learn early on in the story, with confrontation, and she has some issues with anger. And I feel like everyone is angry right now, or there's some element of, of anger. I think it's inevitable that this anger will need somewhere to be released, and that's what I took from the story. And I was just wondering why you, well, one, why you chose the DMV as the setting for this story and why the issues of anger came through in this story for you. I do think that story is about anger in some ways, but I also think it's an exploration of a person who needed an outlet, which is sort of what the story about Randolph is doing too. I mean, There's a character who says, if you don't let this stuff out, it's going to come out some other way. And that's what I was interested in exploring with Marjorie. So I initially had this idea to write a story about someone who had gone into a place expecting a confrontation and who was already sort of riled up before she got there and then got such great service that she had no outlet for the anger that she'd been sort of compounding the whole time, which is still what happens in that story. But it happens in a different way than I planned for it to. And I think Marjorie's anger is something that she doesn't even realize is a problem until she's sort of meant to wait in this space where she's alone with her mind, even though she's surrounded by other people, but she's really thinking about some things that she hasn't been forced to think about before. And it's all bubbling to the surface. And so since the DMV is a rough place for those of us who have been there before, I think we all can identify with being stuck in that environment. And then also when you add the emotional trauma that she's reliving while she's waiting there, it's just sort of a great place for tension to be explored. Exactly as you said. So she's she sat there and she's going through all these things in her mind. And at the beginning of the story, gives us a number. She's had this many days since her last, you know, kind of confrontation and, and moments of, of anger. And it is interesting because when you struggle with something like that, it does feel like the days add up, but in a very slow way, I would say. And it's certainly not something to laugh at or joke about. These are real issues. And what I found really interesting is that even if you don't have the same level of anger or fear of having that confrontational outburst, you can definitely relate with Marjorie. And 
I would say that about all the characters. You can you can sit there and you can read their story and those similarities can, can come up and say, oh, I've been in that situation or, or I felt that way before. And I just think that that was done so well. Thank you. Kind of going back to humor, what other elements of your life do you draw humor from? And do you look to have more humor in your life that perhaps influence the way that you write as well? Yeah, I mentioned that I only watch comedy because I'm too sensitive for drama. Drama just riles me up too much. I get anxious on behalf of the anxious people and sad on behalf of the sad people. And I don't like being taken through that sort of emotional roller coaster. So I kind of surround myself with comedy intentionally as a way of keeping myself upbeat. But I also, I'm really nosy. And I think being a good observer of people will always lead to some humor. I still have a spy notebook as Harriet the Spy taught me the wrong lesson. I read the books and thought that <laughs> even though everyone turned on her when they found her spy notebooks, that they were still a good idea. So oh my gosh, I, I love still, that. <laughs> yeah, I carry them around with me. I have something with which to write always. And if you just watch people, even if you just watch birds or squirrels, yeah. I mean, there's funny stuff around us all the time. And it's, again, that absurdity in everyday life there's always some sort of conflict or tension going on, which is kind of the basis of stories. And it's about the perspective you take on that conflict and tension and thinking about what's underneath it, what's driving it. There's often a lot of humor in answering those questions. That is so true. I wanted to also say, uh, we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, but I loved the Seth Meyers interview. Congratulations. How was that? How did you find that? Did you enjoy it? It was really fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. As a kid, I always I shouldn't say this, but I imagined myself being on late night <laughs> talk shows and I would practice all that's the time. Fantastic. So it was a dream come true. Oh, that's so great. I loved it. I watched it multiple times and I loved your confession in the interview about having the TV on when you write and it's kind of like your white noise. And I was just wondering what um, particular TV shows you love having on when you write. 90210 has been a longtime favorite and I used to also write to the original love connection which would come on for hours a day on the game show network when i was in grad school i got so much work done to chuck woolery and love <laughs> connection but it's also just one of my favorite shows ever i tend to write to divorce court or paternity court still because they're kind of trashy and i find that funny and my latest thing is writing to the original charmed series 90s television it's in a league in its own isn't it it really is. It was a golden era. I remember my favorite shows growing up was Full House. I absolutely loved Full House. I grew up in Texas and I wanted to go out and be in San Francisco, the the Tanner family. And uh, I don't know if you, if you watched that show, but I just was obsessed with it. I did watch that show and I got a lot of my bad stand-up from Uncle Joey on that <laughs> show. So you can see why it didn't go over so well with my classmates. Bringing us on to the last question, which is the premise for this podcast, I would love if you could imagine your book on a shelf and you have the opportunity to put different books and different authors on that shelf with yours, it would be great literature frozen in time. And I would love to hear from you on any books that you would definitely have to have on your shelf, any books or authors that have inspired you. Yeah. George Schuyler is a black writer who is doing some really, really fun things. His novel Black No More is one of my favorite novels ever. And I don't think alphabetically we would end up next to each other, even though he's an S and I'm a T, TS. Matt Johnson's Loving Day is also one of my favorite novels. I'm really getting into Caitlin Morin now. I think it would be fun to be on a shelf near her. And I don't know, maybe Paul Beatty. 
who does a lot of cool work as well. The great thing about this question is you can have anybody that you want. It doesn't matter if it's alphabetical. So I think that that sounds like a really great shelf. I'm sure everyone listening is as keen to know as I am whether you have any books or any work that's coming out soon. I have a book under contract, a novel that I'm still working on and probably won't be out until 2020 something. But we probably will see Fatima again and possibly more cosplay again. Oh, that's amazing. And now there's loads to look forward to. And 2021 or 22, it'll be definitely worth the wait. And if people want to get in touch with you on social media or any other way to you how much they loved your book, how would be best to do that? Twitter's great. And so is Instagram. I'm just nafisa.thompson.spires on Instagram. And on Twitter, my name is too long. So it's Nafisa T hyphen S, <laughs> Nafisa T S, or T as for Thompson is I think my handle. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Nafisa, for taking the time to chat with me today. As I said, your book was one of my favorites from last year. I, I still look to it. Just sometimes the cover because it just is so beautiful and the stories certainly within them uh, within the book are equally beautiful. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!